Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hi, I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and this week's podcast is The Arrival of Computer Technology to Ireland. And it was probably the most significant factor that changed our lives forever. And now we live in a world of communications where we can connect with one another so quickly. But when did this technology reach our shores here in Ireland? In this podcast, you will hear the voices of those who were instrumental in introducing us to that brand new technology. People in education, former Professor John Byrne, Trinity College. Professor Wright decided that computing was the future. Founding President of the University of Limerick, Edward Welch. The country was starting to industrialise. Shannon was the epicentre. Lamas and Brendan O'Regan had created a tax-free zone, a duty-free zone, Shannon. Former President of UCC, Jerry Rickson. At that stage, I had become a kind of an expert in making... um, a very low-noise, high-frequency component. Former Head of School of Electrical and Electronic Engineering, Larry Poland. We decided that we would um, pay particular attention to computer engineering because we saw the light that this was happening. And in business, Des Tannum, the old Clondalkin paper mills. Did you ever see the older films with these things whizzing around? Tapes. And that's how the storage originally was, 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 was accommodated. But they never show them in the films breaking, because they broke every ten minutes. Former Managing Director Frank McCabe of Semiconductor Manufacturing in Dundalk. Totally new technology, even to myself. It was a monumental challenge, because you're coming back. Uh, new brand new technology locating it in a place like Dundalk that its only industrial history was in the shoemaking business and Fexco International Exchange Company Stephen O'Sullivan uh, Fexco was probably about three years going at that time and he knew um, that uh, you know computers and, and, and software for his business which at the time was foreign exchange were going to be crucial in terms of optimising his business and making his business more efficient so he was my client Brenton Tuvi who was in the Department of Transport and Communications we used to go to the States every year we'd meet these companies and we'd yeah. see what you know what's this internet you know this was just at the very start of the internet how can we get in on this and we did and then subsequently the the global crossing was the trigger that deal that allowed that to happen which in turn then brought a whole lot of companies google and all these guys came in here because we had the connectivity but first the country had to get connected up with power in the 1950s the rural electrification scheme started i started with esp i started my career with esp and uh, i was i started uh, more or less straight away into the rural electrification scheme. Michael Hayden was appointed rural engineer for that scheme and later on in his career he was the founding managing director of ESB International. Which was probably at a peak at that stage. That would have been, uh, say, the start of 1956. It was a hugely transformational event or our time uh, for the country, not, not, not just for the ESB, but I mean, mm. if, if you pick out some of, the, some of the highlights of what has happened in the country, and uh, say in ESB terms, 
the Shannon scheme will clearly stand out. I mean, that was transformational for the country because that gave the country the kind of confidence to be independent. Uh, the, I say the Shannon scheme more so. It was more symbolic of, of the success of the country at the time than any other event, you know. And the next big thing then would have been the rural electrification, which really uh, transformed the whole society. It wasn't just a big engineering project, mm. but it was a socially transformational event. It had a huge impact on, on society, rural society, of course, obviously, but, but rural in the wider sense of the word, you know. So, so I mean, it was. I think, uh, looking back, uh, it was a great thing to be associated with because, you know, if you ask yourself, what are the big things that moved the country forward? Yeah. That's at least uh, in, in the top ten any time, you know. Uh, what was your brief there in those early days? Uh, your brief was was to take a crew of people and and uh, move into an area, a big area, maybe a big large parish or a few parishes, and uh, set yourself up there and electrify that that whole area. You know, typically might take six months, six months that order. You know, and I mean, I, I, I as a rural engineer then was, if you like, the manager of of that crew or gang or whatever you like to call them, you know. Most of whom, uh, a handful would move in and then they'd yeah. recruit the rest of the people locally. So when we came in, by and large, uh, the plan in broad terms was set and uh, our job was, was to go ahead and implement it then, you know. I see. And it was all a very low-cost operation. I mean, I always call it a kind of a Chinese solution that, you know, I remember talking to some of the early pioneers in the ESP working the Shannon Scheme, but they kind of lived off the land. They used to live in tents and move along on the land. There was a lot of that in the rural too. It felt like you were coming in and forming a Chinese army, you know, of the population. And then they were taking it on, taking on the project. Then it's kind of social, stroke, economic. You know? John Byrne graduated from Trinity College with a degree in civil engineering. In 1957, he enrolled in a PhD. And that summer, he went to English Electrical in Stafford, and he operated on the JUICE Digital Electrical Universal Computing Engine. It was the yes. dawn of oh, it was, it was yes. just the very it was, beginning. Yes, yes, yes. And and so it and it was a huge big machine, and you could walk down the middle of it. And there was an ele- there was a magnetic drum, which was the main storage. And you had to pick the data up at the right time when it came to the read head. So it was quite tedious. I didn't have to do that. It was quite tedious. And then if the things went wrong, they, somebody got a magnet and wiped the clean. <laughs> and you could, there was a cathode ray tube which showed the, the small memory. And if it suddenly went all uh, bright, uh, then there was something wrong. <laughs> it was but it a huge, was- big room, uh, air-conditioned, you know. He was awarded an ICI fellowship and was appointed lecturer in Trinity College. And he spoke here about his memories of the IBM 1620 computer. But then in 1962, uh, Professor Wright decided that computing was the future. And IBM were selling machines at the time at 60% discount. It was a brilliant move because they got into universities all over the world. And uh, he scraped up the money. And this is worth recording. And I I hope it's right, but I think it's approximately right. Uh, There was an engineering school trust fund that had been collecting some money, and Lyle Collin was the leader in that. And uh, they came up with 4,000. The Institute of Advanced Studies came up with 1,000, uh, provided they got some time, and they had a very distinguished numerical analyst there at the time, Professor Lanchos. And then the college graciously loaned them the other 5,000, because the cost was 10,000, loaned them the other 5,000, which he paid back every year, and they graciously let him off the last year. But it was an IBM 1620, it had 20,000 decimal digits memory, uh, an electric typewriter as the input-output, and paper tape. So extremely small, the tables for multiplication and addition were in, you had to load them every day in the memory. It wasn't even hardware for multiplication and division. So, uh, but it had a, 
Fortran compiler. Fortran is still uh, a major language in the engineering and science area, but we had a Fortran compiler, as well as what's called assembly language. But the machine was interesting in, in that it was a decimal machine and not binary like they are today. So it's one less complication that it's decimal. Okay. And, and where, was Trinity the, the first to get a computer at the time? Ah, now, at the same time, uh, UCD ordered one, and I think the UCD one was installed first, but ours was installed on the 15th of June 1962. We have photographs that were coming in the window in 21 Lincoln places where it started off. It's now the part of the dental hospital. And uh, so it, it, it was a transistorized machine, so it was relatively small. Were they exciting times? Ah, yes. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. Were, you were, yeah. had something new in your hands. Yeah, that you yeah. and I was lucky in that I was the only one around who knew anything about it, so I more or less uh, took it over, really. The first computer was built in America during the Second World War in a Manhattan project, which was to develop the atom bomb. Des Tannen qualified as an accountant, and in 1953 he joined Clondalkin Paper Mills. He talks here first about the first computers and the arrival of the computer to Ireland. And they couldn't have done it without a computer of some sort because there's millions of calculations and it wouldn't be possible to do them manually. And that was the first computer. Okay. Uh, from there, of modern times, from there it developed... European companies took it up, and English, well, English, European, and they opened up after Honeywell came here from America. They sold um, and IBM to government departments, finance, and people like that first. But these were very rudimentary. Yeah, so they wouldn't do anything like yes. present day. Have you any idea how many computers were in Ireland at this stage? Well, when we got the first big one in, uh, what was it, Derek, 1966? 66. There were, from that company, there were three installed. Clendalkin Paper Mills, Goulding Fertilizer, and the sugar company in Mallow. Yes. And they were the only ones from that company, and there were very few others, except in government. I think Revenue had one. Probably no. one or two others, but yeah. not Erlingus. Erlingus yeah. had it, yes. Bert Cusick was the managing director of Clondalkin Paper Mills, and he financed Des Tannen's research in finding out how computers could assist and enhance the accounting work that went on in the paper mills. And I mentioned that uh, Cusick, who was the managing director, was very go ahead about uh, new developments. He was an engineer himself. And uh, I read, having read about them, I inquired further, and there was a company here called ICL, International Computers Limited, an English company, which is in Adelaide Road, and uh, they were bringing in these type of little, tiny machines, which did very, very little compared to, no comparison with the situation in computers now. And they had one in uh, Ford's in Dagenham, and they asked me would I go over and do that, have a look at it, which I did. And they put me up in the Park Lane Hotel and had a chauffeur-driven Jaguar brought me out to Dagenham. <laughs> yes. I never saw the like of it in my life. <laughs> Were you scared by this new technology, the idea of... No, because I'd read about it, you know, from, say, 1954, and I read this article. No, I wouldn't be scared about it. I'd be interested in... Uh, yeah. enthusiastic about it. So what did you do? What well, did you do to... Well, having gone over yes. to look at this little machine, which did absolutely tiny bits of work, uh, we bought one in, in the paper mills. Oh, was that an IBM? No, it was ICL, it was. Could you describe to me what ICL stands for? International Computers Limited, it was. It was an English company. It's okay. gone long ago. Right. Many, many years. And I asked him, did he like working with the computer? The novelty at the beginning. Oh, was it? Yeah, because he had to develop uses for it and all programs. You know that we go into a, a computer supplier now, a shop, 
you can buy a program to do anything you want to get done. You know, they're all there on shelf. You take them off. Those day, these days, when we were talking about what we're talking about now, everything had to be written as a program. And that's what Derek and Eddie Scott, and then Hugh later did. You couldn't get anything off the shelf. Yeah. You had to design a program and write down what you wanted, and then it was written. Derek Breen worked with Des Tannen at that time. That was your job, yeah. Eric, was it? Yes, I suppose more importantly, uh, in terms of the computers then, that had no memory, uh, nor had it any <coughs> disk capacity. So okay. for the initial programs we had, they were um, punch cards. I don't know if you're familiar with the originally 80-column punch cards, and the data had to be contained in that, and every morning you read that into the, this massive big machine, like... It had no facility to retain anything, so you you fed in the program and you fed in the data, and you got your result back out in forty col- eighty column cards, and a printer then printed off the, the results. I mean, it was really basic when you think of it in today's terms. That was before the advent of a disk capacity. To house this computer, uh, had it a special room. Well, we had, yeah, <laughs> Tommy worked close, uh, his office was close by. We had this massive, this was the, the major, first major big computer we got. And uh, it was bigger than this room, I would say, oh, Tommy. Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole office yeah. had to be cleared out. So it's about 20 by 15 or so. So bigger than this, my goodness. Bigger than this, yeah. Would have been here, wouldn't it? Yeah. It would have been twice the length of this yeah. And you switched it on in the morning and you switched it off in the evening like it had no retention capability at all. Um, I see the 1300s. 1300s, yeah. Did you ever see the older films with these things whizzing around? Tapes? I did indeed. Reel-to-reel tape, is it? Yes. And that's how the storage originally was was, uh, accommodated. But they never show them in the films breaking because they broke every 10 minutes. (laughs) Getting the computer from from England to, to was there a lot of excitement when it actually came in? To oh yeah, Kandog? well, I didn't know what, nobody knew what it was what it was about really, you know, and uh, yeah. it probably included me too. As yeah. you know. <laughs> and the first I knew project, what it did, uh, or I suppose to do, but not yeah. how it worked. But there must have been some excitement about pioneering days and all of that. I mean, was that people didn't philosophize in those days you know as much as they do now uh, everything is concepts now uh, if they had a job and these things happened and they weren't really it wasn't, it wasn't an emotional matter at all yes and, and did the computer need cooling down did it have well it had events and fans all inside yeah. like that were whirling around yeah, yeah. but the interesting thing the first project and Tommy would, would have been affected by this was the payroll um, that we we had developed a, a program to do the calculations and Paddy uh, Paddy Johnson was and yeah. and Tommy yeah Tommy was only a young boy then <laughs> and that was a massive achievement like nothing has changed uh, I, I mean the payroll manually used to take what three or four days to do and then it was possible to do it in half a day that that was the major. And at the completion of that program, I was lucky to get a, a 4.0 out of a 4.0. So. In 1965, Frank McCabe left Bordnamona, where he'd been working as an engineer, to study for a degree in Clarkson University in New York. And in the following year, he was recruited by the American General Electric to be director of manufacturing operations in semiconductor subsidiary here in Dundalk. GE were recruiting at that point and they were on the campus and they were about to, in the planning process, of putting in their first semiconductor operation overseas and they were contemplating where to locate it. Yes. So I was recruited and I was came back here as director of manufacturing of the the first high-tech operation in Ireland, which was in Dundalk. Uh, it was called Echo at the time. And we brought that up to 
producing semiconductor devices, we brought that up to a total of 1,300 people. It was a very successful one. Right, but you were coming in mm. with all the experience that you built up in in, in, in America, and, I, and this was all open, this was new. This was all new. New technology. Yeah, totally new technology. Even to myself, it was a monumental challenge because you're coming back, uh, new, brand new technology, locating it in a place like Dundalk that its only industrial history was in the shoemaking business, that, to recruit the people into this industry, to create a new, totally different environment that had a chance of succeeding. I'll give you one example that I brought that I brought to bear on the project that ultimately ended up making a significant difference. And I was just lucky in the sense of, of uh, eliciting, the, eliciting the information when I was a month in the States before coming here, is that uh, when I came in, the consultants that were already on board, Dutch consultants, they wanted to have uh, ten, ten categories uh, for the production employees, ten different salary levels, ten different job levels. And I realized that would be catastrophe in Ireland. So straight away, uh, I decided on we were only going to have two levels. And that worked extremely well because it meant that you could constantly change the operations. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you had 12 levels, every time you change one. so And that was bedeviling the the Irish industrial scene at that point. Uh, uh, so can you explain to me then, what, what was... Uh, you were setting up something that yeah. uh, had never been... Never uh, been done here. Done here, here yeah. Can you uh, just talk to me? T- hmm. Talk me through that. And, and, and how did you do it? Well... First of all, recruited some very bright young people, which was was great. I brought a few people over from the States initially, just as part of the startup process. But it was more than anything else creating a culture. Uh, I know it's become a popular word now, but I was using it back then. Creating a success culture. Uh, Creating an, an environment where people felt their work was being valued, that their skills were being enhanced. Uh, back at that time, for example, we gave calculators, which had only emerged as a, a new device, to all the operators so that they could, they could do their own analysis of their own work, plant their own control charts. Now, these were people that basically had primary cert. That was it. You know, we tried to recruit higher we could. But I found, as everybody will that, that's here, that the innate skills are very good of the Irish. You know, the basic education they get in Ireland is pretty good and a great motivation to improve their lives and improve their skill sets. Well, what you were doing is, mm. is producing... We're yeah. producing semiconductor devices that were used in everything. Semiconductor devices were used mostly in the early stages of it, in amplifiers and radios and televisions and, and products like that. This was the first chip. First, first chip. But just to give, you, yeah, give you a perspective on this, which is interesting, at that time, on one of the product lines there, which, were basing dis- which was based on manufacturing discrete transistor devices. Transistor is not... People now intend to transistor as the entire radio. No, these yeah. are just the devices, the basic amplifier device within within the radio at the time. And then at that time, it started to be, become the basic building block of the emerging computer industry as well. So at that time, we had one line, 500 people that produced 300 million discrete devices a year, transistor devices. When I retired from Intel... Which was yeah. back uh, back in in uh, about 15, seventeen years ago. Back then, we had one billion transistor devices on a single chip. Oh, it just shows you how. Yeah. How, so it is a billion far. to one ratio. Yes. A billion to one ratio, if you like, from the day they started in the industry until the day they finished. The country was starting to industrialize. Shannon was the epicenter. Um, 
the mass and Brendan O'Regan had created a tax-free zone, a duty-free zone, Shannon. Edward Welch, founding president of the University of Limerick, was in 1965 appointed director of Energy Research Group programme, which was newly set up at the time, and chairman of the Engineering Facility Research Committee. A new high-tech industry was being established there. And the graduates of the traditional universities were of no earthly use. They were not being recruited because they were not geared for what was happening there. And so senior management, senior engineers and so on, were being brought in from outside, mainly from the UK, to try and run these new projects. So the basic point which was clear to government was that something new needed to be done at third level. And they pointed to specifically to the University of Eindhoven, which was linked to the Philips Electronics Complex. So this was this was the only guideline we yes. received. It was part of the package was that a planning board would be set up. So six people were invited, and I uh, seventh was myself. I was chairman and chief executive, and I had something to do in selecting them. Uh, we had wonderful people on the board, Paul Quigley, who worked with Brendan O'Regan in the Shannon development, uh, joined the board. In fact, he was on the selection board when I was selected for the job. And um, we had uh, uh, Professor Declan O'Keefe, who gave me my first lecture in UCC. He was now professor in UCG. There was a Dr. Finbar O'Callaghan, who was the only person with a doctorate in the Department of Education. And then there were uh, two people who were members of the University Project Committee. They were put on for political reasons to attempt to build a bridge between the campaign in Limerick for a university similar to Cork and Galway and the mission, which was quite clear to me, was to make a fresh start and to provide uh, um, opportunities for graduates in the new developing Ireland. And against all opposition from the Department of Education at that time, he was still adamant to see how other universities in countries around Europe were running their courses. Why don't we head off for a week to the continent and and look at some of the various new uh, universities that are emerging there? Uh, so the Department of Education heard about this and directed that we shouldn't go, but I, we went anyway. And um, so in a week, uh, France, Germany, uh, Holland, Denmark, and then we visited the UK on another occasion. Um, and as we moved around, mm-hmm. I could see that the divisions uh, were being reduced and in in Eindhoven where they had just uh, started uh, as a result of a core group who were brought down from the University of Delft there was general agreement that what was happening in Eindhoven was what we should attempt to make happen in Limerick and so after the after the um, after that visit we came back with a vision for what should happen, something new, something different, but plagiarizing, if you like, from what was already happening in continental Europe. And uh, something very similar to the universities I I had experienced in Iowa, Virginia. They were land-grant universities set up in the middle 1800s by Washington with a view to um, building a a science and business base in the states. So I was I was familiar with the mission of these universities, yes. and now the planning board were agreed that the vision that they saw in 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 the Netherlands was what we should attempt to make happen in in Limerick. So it really didn't take him long to understand that there was a great need now to introduce a new degree in European studies. 
One didn't have to be very smart to understand what should be done. I spent a week after I came back from the continent, a week out in Shannon, meeting the movers and shakers who were trying to get new enterprise going in Ireland. And they said, look, we have the most wonderful experience with the uh, sons and daughters of the farming community. Uh, They come along, they're not infected by the horrible union uh, ethos from the uh, from in the UK. They're eager to learn. We show them what to do, and they work on the assembly lines, and they're fantastic. But we cannot get leadership in marketing, in management. Uh, your graduates don't speak French or German. Uh, we can't get science, people, advanced materials, advanced manufacturing. We need these kind of people. So they were great. We had a flow of emigrants from Ireland. Yeah. Uh, many of them well-educated, like myself. I couldn't get a job in Ireland. So it was a no-brainer as to what Limerick should do. And so uh, Europe was uh, also an issue in 1970. Would we or wouldn't we become members of the European Union? So I took one key word, uh, the planning stage, Europe. And then I turned that into (laughs) a utilitarian uh, mission, products into Europe, which led then to the idea that the new graduates should understand Europe, should be able to speak French or German. So a degree in European studies was on the agenda. A degree in, in business, because we needed management and marketing in a Europe in a European and international context. I was told out in Shannon that the BCom graduates from UCC or UCG were useless as far as they were concerned. Jerry Rickson, former UCC president, went to Berkeley University in California in the 1960s. He signed up for a PhD and he was in the electrical engineering department, but his research was on radio astronomy. My advisor was a professor of electrical engineering, but he was also head of the radio astronomy laboratory. So um, so mine was kind of half electrical engineering. I had to build receivers, uh, build antennas, uh, that kind of thing. But also I had to do the observations and model them on the computer. So it was a, a mix of technical stuff, computer stuff, and um, atmospheric modeling, basically. This was a really exciting times if you happen to be a student in the early 60s uh, in a university where you were studying uh, astronomy and engineering and electrical science. It, it must have been fascinating. Yeah, well, actually, we're still talking the 60s. But, uh, well, my emphasis was on high-frequency things. Millimeter waves were were the area of radio astronomy that I built the receivers and and that. So, uh, and, and in fact, my PhD thesis was looking at the at Jupiter and Saturn, the radio waves coming from Jupiter and Saturn, and uh, trying to um, determine something about their atmospheres uh, because of the the spectrum of radio waves coming in the millimeter wave part of the spectrum. In 1974, he was offered a lectureship in UCC in Cork, and but there was another reason why he came back to Cork. At that stage, I had become a kind of a an expert in making um, a, a very low noise, high frequency component, which was used in millimeter wave receivers. Um, and uh, I had contacts with the the French, um, the British, and the German radio astronomers that were moving into this area and they wanted to get hold of some of these components and I put it to them that if they supported a laboratory for me in Cork then uh, I would take a job there and 
set up the laboratory and, you know, supply them with these components. And basically they said yes. So um, so the fact that I mm. had a kind of a, quite a sizable so-called research grant to come back to, uh, you know, I, I really was able to set myself up before before coming back because at the time there wasn't really any research money around. The company run by an Irish guy, but he called it American Microcomputers because that's in fact what he was building and he was selling software to go with it and, and, and that was my job was to, to uh, write the software. In the 1980s, Stephen O'Sullivan had been working with the American Microcomputers when he was headhunted by the founder of Fexco, Brian McCarty, and this was an international uh, foreign exchange company based in Kilorgan. And, and one of my clients happened to be uh, Brian McCarty, in, in, in who at the time, uh, Fexco was probably about three years going at that time, and he knew um, that, uh, you know, computers and, and, and software for his business, which at the time was foreign exchange, were going to be crucial in terms of optimising his business and making his business more efficient. So he was my client. And uh, we, we struck up a friendship over, I'd say, probably about over, over about a year. And, and uh, eventually he offered me a job and I came down here um, almost 35 years ago to the day, believe it or not. 1st of June 19, uh, 1984 was my, my start date. I asked him where the first computer came from. Well, the first computer came from um, came from American microcomputers where I'd worked, and I'd say it probably um, it probably had two uh, five inch floppy disks and maybe a ten megabyte hard drive. Um, it ran an operating system called CPM, an eight bit operating system, and we were probably using. Uh, programming language called BASIC or C-BASIC for, for, for programming it initially. After that, we, we, we moved on. There was a, a an inter- very interesting uh, California company which opened up in Cork uh, called Northstar, and they, um, yeah. uh, they made what were called at the time multi-user computers. So basically you, had, you could have 10 workstations hooked up to the same cent- kind of central system. Each workstation had its own processor, but then for storage and for printing... Um, the facilities were shared in 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 in, in, in the server, um, and then that we we when we moved to the UK with our tax-free shopping business, we decided we needed to get what was then called a, a mainframe computer, and and we got a computer from Sperry, and then three or four years later, we upgraded to another from 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 uh, Unisys for, for when we got the co- contract for the prize bonds and. Um, from the during the nineties, then I suppose the PC became um, a commodity item. We decided that we would um, pay particular attention to computer engineering because we saw the light that this was happening. In the early nineteen sixties, Larry Poland was appointed to the Crawford in Cork to lead an electrical engineering department. And during the interview with the VEC, he was asked if he could develop a telecommunications course. Uh, and uh, we, on reading our magazines and journals, etc., we saw that there was going to be potential for people with computer engineering knowledge. Uh, so we emphasised that in our course uh, for two years from 69 uh, until we left in 74 for the RTC in Bishopstown. I had a problem with recruiting people for that purpose because I couldn't teach it myself. <laughs> um, uh, so I recruited a gentleman called Louis O'Halloran, who was a graduate of UCC, post office engineer um, for a while, IBM for a while, and he was um, with um, a company called Joan Electronics, um, who were manufacturing huge scoreboards for big arenas. And I know he put one into Benghazi for the 2000th anniversary of somebody's dynasty or something, whatever it was in those days. And he put one into um, Utrecht for the European Swimming Championships. And they were built in Cork and, and sent out there. This now back into the 
late 60s, like 65, 6 or 7. Uh, and uh, he was very, very good on computers and very, very good on digital electronics, which is the foundation of computers. And he was really, I, I would say, the best teacher of digital electronics in Ireland. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. At that time, what, what was the atmosphere? Did, did It was something almost, uh, you know, people couldn't comprehend how how this would all work well, well that'd be true that'd be true we, we myself and Louis were the only people who knew what was going on <laughs> uh, he was indoctrinating me and he was using his head obviously um, but um, we designed our courses and uh, stood the test of time which is important and they're, they're tweaked obviously uh, yeah. every free, very frequently and you have to absorb new ideas yeah. so when we came out here in 74 our name was established as being the place to get people for computers. Uh, what kind of computers were you working with? We were working the with... Very with basic ones, sure. No, 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 no. We were working with um, with what are called... Uh, well, well, some of our students went to IBM, obviously. Um, but uh, there was, a, there was a, a move... The IBM owned the world at that stage. And people didn't like that. When you went to work for IBM, you sold your soul to them and you never got out, etc. That's the kind of statements that were made by both IBM. But they, um, they ruled the world. There were some um, competitors came along and they tried to defeat them and couldn't defeat them because they were so big and they were so, so much power. But um, we, um, we, there was a move then away from these huge mainframes, as they were called. One computer sitting in a room and so on, but attendants and technicians and engineers around it constantly making sure it continued to work um, and that the heating was, the cooling was right not the heating the cooling because it didn't generate a lot of heat um, and um, uh, they had to be constantly pampered mm-hmm. and then there was a, a move then to smaller size computers called midis as things from mainframes and the midi was a middle size computer and this is where Digital Equipment Corporation came in they were the the new IBM, if you like, but they were a huge company. Eventually, they were they finished up and they were sold, etc., etc. They moved on, they, they developed, and I'd like to say that our courses did, in fact, s- set the ball rolling. If you want to come to Ireland, you know, how far ahead have a chat were with, we? Have, have a chat with IB, have a chat with Dick, and they let you know what the situation is. How far ahead were we? Well, we in Cork were the first in Ireland. How about mm-hmm. Ireland, England, Scotland, um, Wales, Europe? Uh, we, 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 we'd be on a par with those at that stage, I'd say. We wouldn't be... A, maybe our course, were, well, actually our course for technicians were a bit better. Than anywhere else in, in, yes, in Europe? Yes, uh, or the States. Or the States. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when I remember, I remember talking to some of these um, prospective industrialists and I'd say that our certificate course was better than your certificate course in the States. What did they call it? I can't remember. Uh, but not as far as your Bachelor of Technology, they said. And our Bachelor of, our Diploma would be about your Bachelor of Technology level. And I, but he said, but you look for technicians from the certificate. And he said to me, well, it would want to be better than our, certi- our certificate, he said. It would want to be, because theirs wasn't very good. Computers, I, computers have changed our lives I'll completely. Tell you, I'll tell you... I remember I said this to you but, um, uh, earlier, but I, I had a visit one time from salesmen from England who were selling some digital electronic stuff. This is back in 62 or something, I can't remember precisely. And one of our textbooks after his name was Abraham, Abraham's son or Abraham. And he asked me, was I interested in digital, uh, was I interested in digital computers, which is what they were talking about. And I said, yeah, no, so I'm more interested in analog computers. And of course, they were nice to study, and they, they helped in mathematics. They were a mathematical representation. They were a computer representation of mathematical formulas. And uh, I, but they were very unreliable. They had what was called drift, and you couldn't rely on results. <laughs> and I said I wasn't interested. But then I did some reading after that, and asked him, wondering why he was pushing me a bit on this. So I felt I put my foot in it <laughs> in a big way. <laughs> So I, I, uh, I just said I'd, I'd look into this and I looked into it. And so in 63 or 64, 
we offered a course for engineers, computers for engineers here in Cork. And there were civil engineers and some mechanical engineers and electrical engineers all joined the course. There was a hundred on the course. Right. We, had, we had no classroom <laughs> to fit them, so we had to take them down to the, um, to the um, uh, art gallery where there was a hundred-seater um, uh, theatre. We filled that for a number of over 12 weeks or something with, um, with um, all these fellas learning about what computers do, etc., etc. It wasn't the greatest course in the world, but we did it. And we had no computer. But we went up to Sunbeam Woolsey to get the demonstration on the computers up there, which were valid computers. Big fans, noise, it was unbelievable. I thought it'd be quiet, but it was noisy. And the heat, and they had to fill up there permanently, um, making sure that it worked constantly. That was, right. an, that was an ICL, actually, I think. In the 1990s, Brendan Tuhi was Assistant Secretary in the Department of Transport and Communications. We'd have been responsible on the mining, exploration and the whole corporate services and that whole strategic management initiative then. Yeah. And that was 92 to 96 and 96 would have taken over the whole telecoms area that subsequently broadened out into the internet and uh, the whole new developments. Um, We have overseen the Telecom Air in flotation, the IPO of Telecom Air in 99. Um, some of the deals, we did the, a big deal in 98 with Global Crossing, which was to bring in, a, to connect Ireland into the directly into the U- US. And yeah. that was a sort of interesting because at the time we, we were very concerned that we were going to lose some of the big companies here, the Microsofts and that of this world, because when we were going back and forth to the US with the IDA to try and establish what these new businesses are going to be, and they were talking about the internet and the web, and we were to get on top of this, what is it, and what are the implications? So we realised, or we came to a conclusion that there's going to be a huge demand for bandwidth, and it's the the demand is going to be exponential, and the cost is going to drop towards zero per item or per per bit. So we said we better put a new cable to the. We were connected through the UK to the US, and we really couldn't do. The companies here, like the Microsofts and others, couldn't really do it. And I can recall um, talking to the minister, and then. She sent me over to meet the Taoiseach. The minister was Mary O'Rourke at the time, and then go over to meet the Taoiseach. And he then sent me into McCreevy, and we had to go in and we sat down. And look, he said, have you got a cost-benefit analysis for this? And we said, no, um, it's really not possible because we don't know what the future is going to look like. But what we do know is that if we're not there, we have a real problem. And at the time, the likes of Microsoft were putting billions of money into the Irish economy, you know, well, yeah. hundreds of millions anyway. Um, so he uh, he gave us, without any cost-benefit analysis, he gave us approval to spend uh, £60 million at the time on that cable. And uh, Where is the cable? It was a cable from Ireland, a fibre cable to the US. But as far back as 1857, the first transatlantic telegraph cable was laid from Valencia Island by an Anglo-American cable company. That was the same issue, really. They, yeah. That was the first connection. I mean, that was really... We were connected for the first time. Not only we. Uh, that was the first... Europe was. Yeah, that was the first real globalisation of business in, the, in, in that sense, that you had the, they were able to get stock market details across the Atlantic yeah. in seconds, which previously would have taken days or whatever. So what we were doing, it was a modern day, the, the, the Global Crossing one, uh, that was the company we dealt with, and uh, subsequently then you had the various companies, the Googles and all that, came in on top of that. But that was very much a fantastic collaboration between the industry and commerce at the time, or IDA, ourselves, and just the government ministers at the time bought into it, and uh, it was yeah. fantastic. And then we would have done a whole stuff on e-commerce in 2000, and we did a new bill, and and then we a whole lot of things. We did the flotation of Aircom, which would, in, which would, would have bought in about... Um, uh, about eight billion to the economy, to the government at the time, and then a billion of that went to pay off the pensions that were due to the former Department yeah. of Post and Telegraph. So that money then went in to start the National Pension Reserve Fund, and that was subsequently used during the banks bailout because the money was there, you know. So like today, there's still a debate going on. It's amazing how people rewrite history that that you know uh, should Aircom have been privatised, but at the time. The Aircom unions and management had negotiated a derogation for liberalisation of the market to 2003. And by 1998, we said, if, if we don't liberalise the market here, we won't have the services and we won't have the variety. So the government bought into that, and the price for that then was that 
um, the Aircom Unions got 14.9% of the company, basically, and the rest then was sold. Uh, KPN yeah. Telia had bought 20 and 15%, and then the, the rest was given to... Um, sorry, the rest was sold, on the, that was sold in the market then on the IPO. So you, these things, there's a call at the time, and it's easy to look back at history and retrospectively say, should we have done this? Like, But at the point in time, it was a decision. We hit the height of the market, rightly or wrongly. It didn't help people up to the following March. Then there was a big, the, the, the internet stock bubble collapsed worldwide. So people with shares kept until March the following year, they lost money. But those that didn't had actually increased a bit, uh, whatever. It went from 390 to 4, 420, 430, whatever. There was a significant increase in value in per share. So in that that period, mm. that time, all those changes in technology, in the way that communications were getting faster, happening at, yeah. a, at a very yeah. quick rate, um, but you were there and you witnessed all these changes. Um, well, I think we not only witnessed it, but I think we felt that we actually took a part in it. So we, we took a view... And we could see what was going on, and we said we need to reposition Ireland. Yeah, you were in a position to make that change happen. Then, well, it's part of a team, yeah. And, yeah. And, and who was there with you? Who well, John Lockery was the Secretary General, and he yeah. was fantastic to work with. And then uh, from '96 to 2002, Mary '97 uh, to 2002, Mary O'Rourke was the Minister of the Department of Public Enterprise at the time, and. Uh, Really, yeah, that was the sort of... Then across all the departments, we had some great colleagues that... And we just all uh, share... And the, in fairness, um, McCreevy was very supportive at the time. And Mary Harney was very... And the teacher, Bertie Harney, was very supportive. So we were... Like, people sometimes can criticise politicians and so on, but they were very, very, very supportive and visionary at the time, and they allowed us to do this. The idea were fantastic to work with as well, because they would have seen the opportunities and we went out with them to I used to go to the States every year and we'd meet these companies and we'd yeah. see what you know, what's this internet? You know, this was just at the very start of the internet. How can we get in on this? And we did and then subsequently the the global crossing was the trigger, that deal that allowed that to happen, which in turn then brought a whole lot of companies, Google and all these guys came in here because we had the connectivity. Well, we've come a long way since the 1970s and the rural electrification scheme here in Ireland. If you would like to listen to the full interviews, you can visit our website at irishlifeandlore.com. Or if you would like to subscribe to our work, you can do so by going to our donations page on our website. That's irishlifeandlore.com. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. And I look forward again to bringing you another podcast next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.